Chapter 22, Part 2 of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Miller. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 22, Part 2. The abuses of the present system of shipping are many and great, and all on the principle of making hay while the sun shines. Here, a shipmaster who published his experiences in October last. On the fourth day, we got two tugs and crossed the outer bar and anchored in Baker's Bay, where the ship had to be lightened to 20 feet and 6 inches draft before she could cross the inner bar and reach Astoria. This laterage cost $2 per ton and had to be paid by the ship. As four other ships arrived about that time, which required lightering also, before they could proceed farther, we were detained at Baker's Bay for nine days, having the expense of a full crew on board all that time. The distance from outside of the outer bar to Astoria is about 14 miles, for which the towage is $500, pilotage $192, and that was in the middle of a beautiful day, ship also using her own canvas and hawser. I believe this charge is almost equal to salvage. The pilots are hired by the owner of the tugs who collects the pilotage, paying the pilots $100 a month for their services. As the pilots have no boat of their own, they are obliged to go in the tugs, which are all owned by one man. I was just 14 days from the time I anchored off the bar till I reached the dock where I was to discharge cargo, and for towage and pilotage alone, from the bar to the dock, paid $1,009. Portland is the Oregon headquarters of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, a corporation formed by the fertile genius of Mr. Henry Villard in June 1879, by the amalgamation of the Oregon Steamship Company, owning the ocean-going steamers between San Francisco and Portland, and the Oregon Steam Navigation Company, owning the riverboats plying on the Columbia and Willamette. Here are the termini of the East and West Side Railroads, originally formed by Mr. Ben Holliday, a name very familiar to Oregon ears. But until this spring of 1881, owned and worked by the Committee of European Bondholders, into whose hands the lines in question fell by virtue of the securities they held. And in Portland also are the head offices in Oregon of the Scotch system of narrow-gauge railroads, now being constructed by means of Scotch capital attracted to the state by the successful working of the land mortgage company referred to above. It will be seen, therefore, that there are abundant reasons for predicting that a large portion of the business of Oregon will center in Portland for many years to come, at any rate. The more cause that Portland men should welcome the development of the other portions of the state, with which, in the future, profitable business is certain to arise, as new industries are started, existing interests widen and strengthen themselves, and new centers of population and business find their places in the growing state. Time will show 
whether the sanguine hopes of the Portland people that their city will hold the virtual monopoly of the trade of the Northwest are well-founded or not. There can, in my mind, be little doubt that she will have a very formidable rival in the city on the Puget Sound, which will spring up, as by magic, when the Northern Pacific Railroad there receives and discharges passengers and freight. It will be an evil day for Portland when the wharves at Tacoma find the grain ships alongside and the cars pouring in the grain of eastern Oregon and Washington Territory, and some little effect on her tolls will be produced when the Yaquina Bay is opened, and the cars of the Oregon Pacific are there delivering the freight of middle and southern Oregon. Portlanders rely on what they call the concentration of capital to pull them through. They have yet to learn the sensitiveness of the movements of their divinity, how prone she is to follow the current of trade to its points of receipt and delivery. And should that day ever dawn, when figures show her supremacy to have departed, not one single sigh will escape these valley counties, which Portland has levied tribute on, and done her best to keep in bondage till the end of time. Passing eastward from Portland up the Columbia, in one of the large and comfortable boats of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, a day's journey brings you to the Dalles. I have already mentioned how rapidly this town is growing, as the point of distribution for the greater portion of northeastern Oregon, and the point of reception for the vast quantities of grain, wool, hides, and other productions of that pastoral and agricultural county. Taking a Willamette River boat, notice in passing the Oswego Ironworks, seven miles from Portland, and then the village of Milwaukee with large and well-appointed nurseries, whence many of the orchards of the state have been supplied. The steamer will then stop at the wharf of Oregon City, just below the great falls of the Willamette. Notice the magnificent river throwing itself over the rocky ridge, which shows one or two black points of rock from amid the foam of the falls. See the lofty hills on either side, clad with vegetation to their very tops, while the little town is crowded on the narrow strip down by the river on the eastern side. What a water power is yet running to waste, though lumber mills, flour mills, and woolen mills take their tribute as it passes. On the west side are the locks. Here the steamer crosses the river from the city, and you get a pretty view of this, one of the earliest settled towns in the state. It dates from the Hudson Bay Company's rule, and the oldest inhabitant can tell you story after story of the early days, when the meetings were held here which virtually determined the allegiance of the infant state. Iron ore has been prospected in plenty in these hills above the town, but waits for development. Passing up the river, the next important place we meet is Salem, the capital of the state. The state capital stands on elevated ground about a mile back from the river, with a large green space in front, planted with ornamental trees and shrubs. The scene from the great windows at the back is really grand, Mount Jefferson being in full view, and the line of the Cascades in ridge after ridge displayed in all their beauty. 
Fronting the Capitol buildings at the other side of the park are the courthouse and offices of Marion County, also a substantial and handsome pile. On the southern side of the Capitol stands the buildings of the Willamette University. The town of Salem is now growing. It has the advantage of a splendid water power called Mill Creek, which is turned to good account before it reaches the Willamette just below the city. On it are placed the pioneer oil mills, where linseed oil and linseed cake are produced, of excellent quality and moderate price. Also a large building now used both as an implement factory and as a flour mill. This has lately changed hands, and it is too soon yet to speak of its success. Below this are placed the Salem Flour Mills of Kinney Brothers and Company. Their brand is recognized and approved in all of the markets of the world, as it ought to be if the best of wheat turned into the best of flour and its sale honestly and intelligently carried out can command success. The mills are fine buildings fitted with the most modern and powerful machinery and stand just on the edge of Willamette with a dock where the river steamers can deliver wheat and receive flour. I believe that this last fall of 1881, they converted 600,000 bushels of wheat into flour. A switch from the Oregon and California Railroad runs from the main line to the mills on the other side and is proving an immense convenience to the city generally as well as to the mills. The steamboat pauses on its upward journey at Buena Vista to take in and deliver freight for the pottery there already extensive, and which, by the excellence of its productions, demonstrates that it only needs further capital and enlarged business relations to do an important share of the trade of the coast. The glaze on the ware is very good, made from a mineral earth found on the, in the bank of the Willamette at Corvallis. After passing the mouth of the Santiam, the most considerable tributary of the Willamette, we stop at Albany. This is one of the best situated and most progressive towns in the state. Although with a little less than 2,000 inhabitants at present, it has all the enterprise and go of a town in Europe of five times that number. There are here also three large flour mills, the brands of some of which are known and prized in Liverpool, to which port cargoes are frequently sent. Albany has a, a lumber mill, foundry, twine mill, and scutching mill, fruit drying works, sash and door factory, and soon will have woolen mills also. The making of the place is the water power of the Santium River, brought in a canal for 13 miles through the level prairie land, but rushing through the town and supplying the mills and factories with a flow and force of water sufficient for double as many works as at present use it. The town is supplied with water for domestic purposes from the same source of clearness and purity that is, is hard to equal. Albany has three newspapers, six churches, a very good collegiate school, and excellent common schools. 
It is a principal station on the Oregon and California Railroad and also an important station on the Oregon Pacific, now so rapidly building. And its point of crossing the Oregon and California and a junction for the branch line to Lebanon, away there under the slopes of the Cascades. Land in the neighborhood of the town, and indeed throughout the level portions of Lynn County, ranging over an area of nearly 20 miles each way, is worth from 25 to $60 an acre. The last sale I heard of, of 132 acres, about five miles from the town, being at $39 an acre. The next town we come to is our own Corvallis, appropriately named as the heart of the valley. It is indeed fitly placed as the valley starting point seaward of the Oregon Pacific Railroad, being on the direct line east and west between Yaquina Bay, the Mount Jefferson Pass through the Cascades, Prineville in eastern Oregon, Harney Lake and Valley, the Malheur River and Valley, and Boise City, the meeting place in the near future of diverse transcontinental lines. Corvallis has been too fully described in these pages to need further reference here. The commencement of energetic construction of the Oregon Pacific and the assurance of its early completion have given an increased business life to the place, which impresses the visitor strongly with the idea of rapid future growth. Continuing in our steamboat to the head of the Willamette Navigation, we pass the little towns of Peoria and Harrisburg, and at last reach Eugene City. This, which is the chief town of Lane County, is blessed with a university, presided over by excellent professors, one of whom, Professor Condon, has name and fame as a geologist far beyond the limits of his county, and also of the state. I trust the time will soon come when the liberality of the legislature of Oregon will provide the funds necessary to enable Professor Condon to complete and publish the systematic geology and mineralogy of Oregon, the materials for which are already to a large extent in his possession, the result of years of careful study and journeyings over the state. Eugene City is a lively, pleasant little town, but has not yet attained any manufacturing or industrial development like some of the other towns in Oregon. This is to come. Leaving the river for the railroad, we journey up to Roseburg, the capital of Douglas County, and the southern terminus of the Oregon and California line. No town can be more prettily placed, really at the head of the great valley country, with the vast mountain forms behind frowning on the traveler who dares attempt to thread their passes. As I have said, the Douglas County people trust to get a railroad outlet from Roseburg down to the Coos. I hope they will succeed and so open to ocean transit the productions of a vast and fertile country. Turning north again as far as Corvallis, we may there take the West Side Railroad and journey along the west side of the Willamette Valley and River. The towns of Independence, Dalles, Sheridan, Amity, Lafayette, McMillanville, Forest Grove, and Hillsboro lie in the district between Corvallis and Portland. 
Each and all are thriving, but I can do no more than mention them, for I fear so short a reference will be considered scant courtesy to the active, pushing people who are laboring with such success at the development of Polk, Yam Hill, and Washington counties. The land is almost uniformly good. Large quantities are being yearly grubbed and put under the plow, and several of my recently arrived English friends prefer the undulating land and gentle slopes of this side of the valley to any other part of Oregon, and have proved their preference by their actions. Land in these counties varies from 10 to $20 an acre in price. I think I will close this somewhat tedious chapter by setting out the counties of Oregon, their population, and the statement of their taxable property furnished by the Secretary of State. Baker County, population 4,615, taxable property as of 1880, $931,139. Benton County, population 6,403, taxable property of 1880, $1,766,000. 282. Clackamas County, population 9,260, taxable property 1,886,916 dollars. Clatsop County, population 7,222, taxable property 1,136,099. Columbia County, Population 2,042. Taxable property $305,283. Coos County. Population 4,834. Taxable property $832,335. Curry County. Population 1,208. Taxable property Two hundred nineteen thousand three hundred thirty-three dollars. Douglas County, population nine thousand five hundred ninety-six. Taxable property two million two hundred forty-eight thousand nine hundred eighty-five dollars. Grants County, population four thousand three hundred three. Taxable property one million eighty-eight thousand ninety-seven dollars. Jackson County, population. 8,154. Taxable property, $1,449,623. Josephine County, population 2,485. Taxable property, $253,594. Lake County, population 2,804. Taxable property, $708,517. Lane County, population 9,411, taxable property $3,078,756. Lynn County, population 12,675, taxable property $4,334,479. Marion County, population 14,576. Taxable property, $3,983,173. Multnomah County, population, 25,000, 
204. Taxable property, $11,511,058. Polk County, population 6,601. Taxable property, $1,751,211. Tillamook County, 970, population. Taxable property, 92,912. Umatilla County, Population, 9,607. Taxable property, 2,094,723. Union County, population, 6,650. Taxable property, 1,265,603. Wasco County, population, 11,120. Taxable property, 2 million. $873,645. Washington County, population 7,082, taxable property 2,137,630. Yam Hill County, population 7,945, taxable property values 2,547,833. Total of the state, population 174,767. Total taxable property values, 48,494,223 dollars. Increase over 1879, 2,071,406 dollars. The proportion of taxable property held by each man, woman, and child in Oregon is therefore $277.47. The population of the Valley Counties, properly so called, is 83,549. This leaves Portland and Multnomah County entirely out. The taxable property of these Valley Counties is $23,735,262. The population of the whole of eastern Oregon, east of the Cascades, is but 39099 The value of its taxable property is only $8,958,724. The population of that part of eastern and northeastern Oregon which is in any sense tributary to the Columbia or Snake Rivers, is 28180 The value of their taxable property is $6,256,547. The average taxable property of the population of the Valley counties is $282.68. That of the population of Eastern Oregon, $228.96. These figures will be seen to have an important hearing on the subject of the next chapter. End of chapter 22, part 2.